0: Our text this morning is from Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 verses 13 through 17. And as I read the word of God, I would invite you to stand as a sign of reverence for God's word. Mark 12 starting in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the thing that are God. And they marveled at him. This is God's word. You can have a seat.
1: Good morning everybody, my name is Craig, I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community, we're glad that you're here, worshiping with us this morning, we're thankful for all of you who are tuning in with us online too, man, I'm going to miss this place, just thinking about that, coming up here, what a blessing this has been, Pat's going to say a little bit more about that, but she's so, so, so thankful, thanks again, Barry's, got a lot to work through this morning, so I'm going to kind of dive right in, I, uh, my first line on my paper here that I, that I wrote down just in my notes was, what was I thinking doing this sermon? A <laughs> sermon on politics of all the times and all the places to do it. Why would I want to dive into that hornet's? I'm sucking sucker for punishment, I guess. I don't know. I, I, You know, one of the reasons that I am talking about this today, and obviously we're, we're in Mark still, but we're deviating from where we had gone. We're going back a little bit. Um, the reason that I wanted to talk about it... Himmed and hawed about whether or not we would do this topic. Um, the reason that I wanted to talk about it was because there's a lot of voices out there in the world right now. And I know you're gonna, we're going to discuss this topic for, what, 30 minutes or so. There's a lot of voices. And I just want to make sure, as one of your pastors, as one of your elders, that you're hearing from God's Word. And I know you guys are hearing from different sources, good biblical sources. Um, but I wanted you to hear from us, your elders, who really do care about you. Well, I want to disciple you, in a sense. I want to disciple myself. I wanted to know what I thought. What does God's word have to say about our current political climate? What does God think about government, politics, that sort of things? And so we're going to navigate these tricky waters this morning. And they're tricky. Man, I I just don't like these kind of sermons. I don't like, I'm not a big controversy, craven kind of guy. I'm not trying to stir something up. But I just feel so compelled about this, this this issue and its importance to our lives that I feel compelled to speak about it. So here we go. Mark chapter 12. If you have a Bible, I, am, I would invite you to take a look at it. I'm going to give you a little bit of background. We'll pray. We'll dive in. Okay? At this time, the time that Mark 12 was written, the story that was taking place with Jesus, all who lived in the Roman Empire paid a tax, a one denarius tax and it was one denarius for every male. A denarius was one day's wage. So paying taxes is kind of like a census. It was hateful to Jews. They didn't didn't want that to happen. Paying taxes was hateful to them because it was just another sign of their oppression, their subjugation to the Roman Empire. That's the empire that the Jews lived in. Caesar, through the tax, was effectively saying to all the people, Jew, Jew, Greek. It didn't matter who they were. He was saying to them, I own you. That's what Caesar was trying to say. The Jewish leaders then posed this question to Jesus. This is what we just read. Two different groups of Jewish leaders, though. I want you to notice this. Two different groups, Herodians and Pharisees. Normally, these guys were enemies. Herodians were pro-Rome. Pharisees were pro-Israel. But here, they were bound together by a mutual hatred of this guy, this teacher, this man, Jesus. And the question is, is kind of a heads I win, tails you lose kind of question. It's clever. They're trying to catch Jesus. They made Jesus choose between the Romans or the people. And whichever one he picks, he loses the other, right? He's either going to lose Rome, the government, or he's going to lose the Jews. And either way, his mission is sunk. Jesus' answer obviously displays incredible wisdom, incredible insight in, in catching the religious leaders in the hypocrisy, but it's far more than that. It's not just catching the religious leaders in their hypocrisy. He is, in a couple sentences, telling us our responsibility to the earthly nation we live in and our responsibility to To the heavenly kingdom we belong to. The religious leaders didn't belong to the heavenly kingdom, but the King of Kings was standing there in front of them, demanding their allegiance. And if you're a Christian, you have sworn allegiance to that King, to King Jesus. The responsibility of the religious leaders and ours is the same. But only those who belong to the kingdom by faith in Jesus can actually do it. So what is the responsibility? This is our responsibility. What is the command? The command is this. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So what I want to consider with you this morning is how do we, I'm talking about you and me. How do we obey that command here and now? In our current political and social climate, what do we need to render, what do we need to give to our government? What do we need to render, what do we need to give to God? Now, before I go a step further, I just want to emphasize that this, pop, that this topic is so important and massive. I uh, I already mentioned to you, I feel really potentially contentious topic like this, and and I also want you to know that I have so much to learn still. In, In that sense, I am bringing you all, as my brothers and sisters, I'm bringing you all with me as I learn about my role as a Christian living in the United States, living in Champaign County, living in Urbana. To prepare for this, I read books and articles, I listened to podcasts and sermons, I talked to friends, I got feedback, and I even with all that, I still feel like I'm just scratching the surface of this topic. And During our time together, I'm, I'm going to try to answer those questions I just me- mentioned, but I, I just don't have enough time. It's inevitably going to be incomplete. My hope, my aim, my goal at this time, through this message... To do three things, and here they are. It's to bring clarity, this is the first one, to bring clarity to our responsibility to government and to God. Number two, to ground our confidence in God's Word, the Bible, as the authority over all we do. And here's the third to fuel your confidence in and love for King Jesus. To such a level, to such an extent That it would overwhelm any political differences You have with brothers and sisters Who are seated right next to you right now So that's where we're going to go Let's pray, let's ask for God's help We need it Father, we worship you We worship you in this in this place What a great place to worship you As King and Lord over all the earth There is none greater than you There is none higher than you, more powerful than you We need your help this morning And we, we call out for it, we ask for it Help us, Father, to be a people that pursues what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That we would shine your glory in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, let's unpack this together. First, we'll we'll, we'll take up Jesus' first part of his response. If you see my hands pressed here the whole time, it's because all these papers just want to fly away. And if these things go, I quit. I'm just kidding. I need these papers right here to help me. Believe me. All right, here's the first part. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, okay? That's the first part. What do we, what do you, what do I need to give, render, to the government? What's your responsibility to the government of the nation in which you live? Now, we need to recognize that there are people here from other nations here with us today. People who belong to other earthly governments. And that's why I'm I'm not just saying the U.S. government. There are people from all governments. And this applies. This is the beauty of God's word. It applies across all people, all nations, all time. So what is your responsibility to the government in which you live? Jesus intends us to be good citizens of the country in which you live. When Jesus holds up that coin, he tells them first to obey the civil, uh, civil authorities. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give the Roman government what's due to them. And specifically, what Jesus is talking about is a tax. The responsibility of a citizen of Rome. You and I are commanded by God to be good citizens of the cities, counties, states, countries in which we live. So, now let's ask the question, what does that look like? First, what does it look like to be a good citizen? First, we obey the government. We obey the government. Jesus still wants the people under an oppressive Roman regime to obey them. In chapter 13 of Romans, God is speaking through Paul to us. And he says this. This is chapter 13, verse 1 of Romans. Let every to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, this takes some careful thought. How could Jesus have commanded people to be subject to a government that would eventually drive nails through his hands, kill nearly all of his disciples, and persecute his church? He expected them to be subject to them. The reason that Jesus, the disciples, and we can obey the government is not because they're perfect— Or do the right things. The reason we can obey the government is because God is ultimately in control and we trust him. Daniel 2 verses 20 and 21 says this. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He decides. He decides. God decides who leads and who doesn't. And therefore, any power given to an earthly government is, is there because of the sovereign will of God. John 19.11 says this. Jesus is speaking to Pilate, the, uh, the Roman ruler. And he says this. Jesus says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. The power of government is a derivative power. It is a given power. God gives them The authority and the power to rule. So why should we as Christians obey government? This is what one pastor said. Why should we as Christians obey government? It is not because they happen to be the strongest group. That is, they control the army or the police. It's not because of some nebulous social contract that was made in ancient times. It's not because an election was held and the voice of the people is the voice of God. That is not why. Not because of some Marxist idea. That this is inevitable or fulfills some sort of psychological need or an economic need. We obey earthly governments because they exist by God's sovereign will. And he reigns over every government, over every state, and over every country. Our obedience to government is fundamentally obedience to God. So that's the first one. We obey the government. That's what being a good citizen looks like. Here's the second one: being being a good citizen of a country, according to the Bible, means that we seek the prosperity of our nation for the general good of all. Jeremiah twenty nine seven says this: "But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare." You will find your welfare. In that verse, in Jeremiah, God's people are in exile. They're under the control of a pagan government. But the command here is to pray and seek God's welfare, to pray to God on their behalf, because in their welfare, the the welfare of the country in which they live, in the good of those people there at that time, God's people will find good for themselves. Christians work for the general goal. So how do we do that? How do we work for our city? How do we work for good for our city? That is a massive, massive topic. But I'll just make it as simple as possible. Jesus said it this way. We love our neighbor. We love our neighbor. How do we do that? You use your time, possessions, and talents for the good of others. Your work, your stuff. Your love, your care, you use that, you give that for the good of others. And in our participatory form of government and life, we have a lot of authority. We have a lot of options to get involved in government, in schools, in sports, music, arts, all kinds of different ways of service and anything really under the sun that works for the flourishing of others. What it looks like to love your neighbor obviously depends on who it is and what the circumstances are. But I just want to emphasize this, and this isn't in my notes, I just had this thought. Loving your neighbor, the most fundamental loving act that you can do, the most love is always to introduce them to the Lord of life, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for them. What it specifically looks like from situation to situation, that's a matter of prayer and seeking the word. It's something that we do together as a church. But God will lead you in that. I just want to say that we do, as good citizens, we work for the good of our city, state, nation.
0: That's what it means to be a good good citizen under the authority of God. So let's
1: summarize what we just learned. Jesus wants you to be a good citizen of your country. How? By obeying the government and by working for the countries that is your neighbor's, more specifically, good But that's not the entirety of Jesus' answer, is it? He also says this. Render to God the things that are God's. So what's our responsibility? Our duty? All right. We're going deeper and deeper here. Earthly governments have limited authority. But God has comprehensive authority. Let me explain what I mean. When Jesus responds with the second part of this answer... He's intentionally drawing God and government side by side, earthly government side by side to show the difference. What he's doing, it's like putting, I was thinking about this, it's like putting two cars side by side and trying to figure out which one is better, which one is faster. But in this case, it's like pulling my 2003 purple Buick that exploded a couple months ago, you guys might remember that story, next to a Ferrari. You're trying to draw a comparison between two cars. Starkly different things Government authority, remember Is derived from God's ultimate authority And when I say authority, here's what I mean I mean the right to give commands To expect that you expect others to follow And to punish when they don't Let me give you an example of that I, I'm the authority of my household, right? I'm the dad But my kids, I love them But they like to think that they have authority too We got lots of mommies and daddies running around my house Who like to tell their brothers and sisters What to do No, they don't have authority I do, Darcy does My wife, we're the authorities Caesar Thought he was God He thought he had ultimate authority It was printed on the coin Actually that he held up That Caesar was God But here, Jesus says no No Caesar, nor any government, is the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. It is to him that you and me and everyone on earth is finally accountable. And because we are finally accounted, accountable to him, the to earthly government is limited. So, that begs a question. Our responsibility to the earthly government is limited. How do we know what our ultimate authority, what God wants us to do? What are, we, what are our responsibilities to Him? Well, it's all written down. It's written down in His Word, the Bible. As followers of King Jesus, you're only obligated to obey His authoritative word. Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do. I want you to I want to let that sink in. I hope that you will. The Bible is sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do. A a friend recently said this to me. He said, it gives us all the information we need to know how to obey God in any circumstance. Because scripture is sufficient for every good work, we're we're only obligated to obey that which scripture commands. And this is historically called the doctrine of Christian liberty. It means... The the way that we view what is good and what is bad must be from the Bible. That is our final authority. That is the standard. And the important flip side of this is that we're not required to do anything that the Bible doesn't require. Now, you might be thinking, whoa, what is Craig saying here? This does not mean that we don't submit to authorities that command us to do things that the Bible doesn't say. We just talked about how the Bible teaches... That God establishes human authorities. We need to submit to authorities. God said that in his word. We just talked about that. We need to submit to those authorities. Unless they contradict God's commands. This distinction is important. And it's worth a couple minutes of consideration. What if, for example, governments support immorality, and sin? What if their policies and plans actually undercut human flourishing somehow, some way, or go against God himself? Many of you know that I spent a decade in China proclaiming the gospel. That was, that act of proclaiming the gospel in the country of China was explicitly against was not allowed to do that according to their law. So, was I in a constant state of sin for those ten years as I was disobeying the laws of China? Was I was I thereby disobeying God's command? And I would argue no. And here's why. In Acts 5, the apostles in the name of Jesus are proclaiming salvation through the name of Jesus. They, they're performing all these miracles in His name and they are doing great acts in His name and they are telling people how they can be saved in His name. Many are gathered to hear, those miracles are done, and the religious leaders are filled with jealousy. They throw those apostles in prison, but an angel came, opened the doors at the prison and they went right back into the temple and kept telling everyone to trust in the risen Lord Jesus for the, forgiven, for the forgiveness of sins. The religious leaders found them there in the temple and brought them back before the whole religious council. And the leaders said this in Acts 5, verse 28, if you want to look at it. The religious leaders have the apostles there in front of them, and they say this to them. We strictly charged you not to teach his in, in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And then Peter and the apostles answered this. They said, we must obey God rather than men. When any government says that we cannot proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is explicitly against the commands of God. We must obey God rather than men. Who told us to go into all nations proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must obey God rather than men. Christian Follower of Jesus, you must obey God rather than men. There may come a time, and it may even be soon, where we must obey God rather than human authority. The way we know that, the way that we will know that we must obey God rather than men is not by loud voices on Twitter. Or cultural winds that constantly change, but by knowing His word In his word, we are truly equipped with everything we need for every good work. Now, every government makes laws that are contrary to the ways of God to some degree, because every government is full of sinners. To the extent that we, the people, can be involved in governments, we must work to correct and improve the way that we are governed. And as we work to correct and improve it, I would strongly urge us to be slow to conclude that when a particular law is enacted, a law we disagree with is made, that that removes the government's rightful authority to govern the people. We have to be slow about that. But as in the case of China, the one example that I just gave, given the urgency of the gospel message, we made an active decision. To live in civil disobedience and obey God rather than the human authorities. Decisions like these must be made slowly. With careful consideration of God's word, prayer, and wise counsel. But let me ask you this. We're talking about China right now. How does that apply to you here today right now? What about your life? Let me ask you this. As a Christian who recognizes the comprehensive authority of God and follows his word, how does that impact who will you vote for on November 3rd? It ought to. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, Scott Berkey and I were talking about this, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, then he's also the Lord over your vote. But I want to take it even a step further than that. Does God's word, remember, it equips us for every good work. Does God's word, a right obedience to God's word, lead us to vote for a particular candidate over another? Do you see how hot these topics can be? Man. I would argue that policy positions can be good or evil. But not necessarily so. Some policies, like just take taxes for example, may be evil, and they might not be evil. But allowing the killing of unborn people, that is explicitly evil, according to God's word. Nevertheless, I want you to listen careful. When voting for a particular candidate in the U.S., the vast set of policy positions... And even, think about this, even the expected outcomes of, of those positions makes it impossible to say that voting for person A or not voting for person A is in itself sinful. It's the heart behind the vote that matters. It's the reason for the way that we vote that matters. In nearly all cases we just can't treat voting for a particular candidate as righteous or unrighteous. We we must not, and I urge you to think about this, we must not treat Christians as if they are sinning in how they vote. But that's the point I really want to hone in on. How will we you, I'm talking about you and me, how are we going to treat each other in this contentious time? probably the, the main help to me as I've studied. This is the main um, soul work that God has been doing in me as I thought about speaking to you today. It's something that I want to pass on to you. What happens when Christians use the all sufficient word of God? We just talked about that. They use the all sufficient word of God and reach different conclusions in different circumstances about what God commands. We must open the church. God commands us to meet together. No, don't open. we got to think about people's health. We must vote for Trump. We can't vote for him. Let's all write in Craig Cody for president. No, no. No. In Romans 14, we encounter an issue of race, culture, and religion. This is about addressing tensions in the Jew-Gentile relationships. Some thought that Jewish holidays needed to be celebrated. Some thought that that food sacrificed to idols could not be eaten. Both arguments on both sides of those issues were made from the Bible. But all the arguments were made from what I've heard called non-necessary inference. God didn't command those things. People required them of one another and treated it as an issue of good and evil, right and wrong, righteous and unrighteous. And that, brothers and sisters, is legalism. When you make unnecessary inference into the law of God, that is legalism. Why is that so bad? We know it's bad. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that legalism is bad. Why is that so bad? Because then people not God, are deciding what is right and wrong, what is righteous and unrighteous, and ultimately who is righteous and unrighteous before God. So what did God say in this situation to those people at that time? This is what he said, and this is what he's saying to us. Romans 14, this is verses 3 through 5. If you want to take a look at it, you can. Romans 14, verses 3 through 5. People were reading the same Bible, but they disagreed about how to obey the inferences that they had made from the Bible. Does, he, does God care about what foods they ate? Does God care about what holidays they celebrate? Does he care about who you vote for? God cares about their and your heart. He explicitly condemns two sins here in this passage, in chapter 14, he, he, two Sins In the midst of this disagreement And the two sins are this Despising one another And passing judgment On one another And then He makes one encouragement Each one should be fully convinced In his own mind So what should we do In this contentious election season When the brother or sister Next to you Right now Is voting for somebody else Someone that you think is reprehensible. Here's what we're supposed to do. Here's what this passage has told us. View that brother and sister sitting next to you as welcomed by God. View your Christian brother or sister as God's servants. View other Christians as people that God will uphold and make stand. In other words... As people, God will judge as righteous in the final judgment. And resist, resist the temptation to check out on politics or voting or other issues, but humbly engage, be, receiving that encouragement to be fully convinced before God what you believe. This is so important. And this is so radically countercultural right now. I really want you to grasp this. This is a place where we, God's people, this this. This time, this cultural moment, this attitude that I'm talking about from God's word, God is saying to us right now, this is an opportunity for us as God's people to display to the watching world that we are different, truly changed from the inside out. How will they know that we are his disciples? Jesus said it was by our love for one another. Would it not be in this moment? What what Romans 14 says to us, Christ community, is that Jesus is bigger If you're a Christian, you have been welcomed by God. You're a servant of God. He will uphold you and you will be counted as righteous because of Jesus' blood. Hallelujah! Praise God! And your brother or sister in this same church, right here, in this same moment, that trusts Jesus who has different political views than you, they are also welcomed by God. He or she has been bought by the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah! You and me Him and her We might have different conclusions Based on what we read in the Bible About what's wise in any number of situations Those disagreements are okay As long as we do not use them As measures of righteousness But what God cares about most Is the attitude we have Toward one another When we have those differences Imagine this Imagine this One brother Walks over from this side And he has a bite to his chest and he is walking this way and from this way you know who's coming another brother and he's got on that bright red MAGA hat and they walk towards each other and they hug each other they can disagree about issues they can wrangle about who to vote for but in the end the most important identity That of servant of God, both standing for God as righteous because of Christ, is what binds them and holds them together. That's what God cares about. Do you care more about the person next to you having been purchased by the blood of Jesus at the cross? Or do you care more that everyone votes for the right candidate? Do I care more that I stand with other justified sinners... Because of Christ, or do I care more that people follow the exact same thought processes I have about things the Bible does not directly address? Am I more frustrated by a brother or sister's political difference of opinion with me, or by my own pride and my own self righteousness? Christian, Brother or sister, obey what God commands in Romans 14, verse 19. He says this, Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Christian unity does not mean that we will agree on everything. This is not a monolithic religion where we are all identical to one another. There will be a diversity in so many ways. But doesn't that show the profound power of the cross? bind together as one man people from all different kinds of backgrounds and cultures we are centered around the truth that Jesus Christ died to save sinners like me and like you that's what binds us together and this brings us to the final point for you and me thank you for sticking with me so long as a citizen of the heavenly kingdom you live as sojourners in an earthly kingdom, consider these passages of Scripture just real briefly. John 18 verse 36. Jesus says this: My kingdom is not of this world. First Peter 2 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passage passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. It is Jesus' kingdom. We don't belong to this world. We are exiles, sojourners. Why does that matter? Ultimately, the church does not exist to reform the state. The church exists to advance a state... A kingdom that will never be destroyed. It's the kingdom that we've been talking about all the way through Mark. The kingdom of God. Established by Jesus' death and resurrection. And now advanced through the proclamation of the word of God. And bring this up to help us think biblically beyond this current volatile moment. What does the post-election look like for Christians? What's the outlook? Nothing has changed about the holiness of our great God, about our sinfulness. Nothing has changed about the need of the world for a Savior. And so we wait with patience for our Savior's return. We wait with hope, perseverance, courage, resolve. We, as the church, we hold up the only way for hope, for salvation, for true and lasting peace. It's the message of the gospel. That by faith, in the name of Jesus Christ, you can be saved, rescued from your sin, brought into an eternal kingdom that will never be destroyed, that will never fade. You'll be part of the kingdom of God. And for those who trust in him, it is him, Jesus, who binds us and holds us together. Jesus is bigger than all of this. COVID, social upheaval, political divides. That is not the story. That's not the story, y'all. That's a minor subplot. The main story that God is telling is one of overflowing love and redemption, purchased through His promised Son, who's coming again to establish an eternal kingdom of perfect righteousness and justice and peace. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but I will tell you who to worship. Worship Jesus He is Lord of all and King of kings. Cling to Him. Pray for our nation. Work for its good. Love your blood, brother and sister. And do all these things as citizens of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are King over all. Be glorified and lifted high today. Thank You that you have bound us together by your blood. Lord, may that be on full display for your glory and for your name. Thank you for bringing us into your kingdom that will never be destroyed. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.